Hello and welcome to the 4 Comic Junkies podcast. We're here partying it up just like good old Mr. J. We've got a parade, we've got balloons, and we've even got some of those wonderful toys. Actually, we don't have any of those things. They were canceled by the government. But that's okay. Because with me today is none other than Mr. Chris Clow. Say hi, Chris. Hey, man. How's it going? Thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, this is exciting. Um, I'm surprised you had the time because at my last count, I think you were the host of 17 other podcasts, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thankfully, hosting duties right now are limited to primarily just one, but there's two that I'm kind of in charge of, and then occasionally my friends pull me into whatever harebrained schemes they have going on. Well, it's uh, it's hard to resist when you have passionate people wanting to talk about their, their cool stuff, and you have cool stuff to talk about, so I mean, how can you say no to that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm fortunate to be friends with a lot of really, really passionate and positive fans that are really into the things that they like, very similarly to the way that I am. So uh, mm-hmm. it's all good stuff, most definitely. Yeah, awesome, awesome. So uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about how you became a comic junkie. And also, um, I'm just going to go ahead and admit this, uh, can you believe it took me this long to come up with that particular sentence? <laughs> Despite my doing this for over six months now, I was like, oh, so I asked people, oh, tell me a little bit about yourself. No, I should say it this way. But so you're the first one to get that question. <laughs> well, I'm honored. I mean, that actually, you'd be surprised. I mean, sometimes it takes a while to get to the most simplistic kinds of direct cuts. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I mean, I have a similar story, kind of. For a long time, I was wondering what the hell I was going to do in terms of a, the name for a website. And because chriscloud.com, I could get it if I had an extra $10,000 cash. Oh. I'm a little short at the moment, so I racked my brain for a long time about what's, what's an alternative that I can use. And it just kind of came to me out of the blue. It's like, wait a second, every single thing that I write has by Chris Clow at the top of it. So why don't I just do by Chris And hmm. that was about a thousand times cheaper. So uh, that's what I decided to go with. Sometimes things just come to you a little bit late. Uh, and I can totally relate to that because they come to me the same way. But um, in terms of how I became a comics junkie, it goes back to the summer of 1989. Really, that's uh, that's really the furthest back that I can trace it because I was only about 18 months old. <laughs> but uh, I have it on good authority from my parents that took me to a a drive-in movie theater in Southern California uh, one summer night. That um, my head was out the window the entire time, just marveling at uh, Batman at the first Tim Burton movie. Oh. So I don't I don't really know. I can't perceive of a time where Batman particularly was not in my life. And of course, from Batman, you know, you get introduced to a bunch of neighboring other characters and Superman was one I gravitated toward very early on. Mm -hmm. But um, 
I had read comics off and on from when I was a kid. A lot of the earliest comics that I read were stuff that either my dad enjoyed or uh, tie-in books like Batman Adventures issues that were uh, linked in with Batman the Animated Series. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, I grew up in the 90s, so that's kind of the golden age of DC animation, at least as far as I'm concerned. Uh, So I had a lot of really good things to look forward to with Batman and Superman. And then, of course, you know, Spider-Man was also on Fox Kids. So that was a show I really gravitated towards, as well as the X-Men. Those Mm -hmm. are the shows that kind of opened up the world for me in terms of characters beyond DC. And um, up through like third, fourth grade, I would read comics on a relatively regular basis. Uh, I remember when I was um, nine years old was when Grant Morrison's first JLA issue came out. And I didn't know who the heck Grant Morrison was, but I knew Mm -hmm. that I liked the Justice League. Yeah. and I read those and probably the first six or seven issues or so. But then I just kind of fell out of comics. Um, I think it was just, uh, you know, middle and high school. You're not really sure what your priorities are. And you got so many social engagements and you got friends' houses to go to and just didn't really keep up with comics until Batman Begins pulled me back in and it pulled me back in in a really really hard way uh, i started keeping up with the dc universe again and of course tiptoeing into marvel stuff that i enjoyed and in 2007 i got a job working at a comic book store that i held for six and a half years and uh just immersed myself neck deep in the wonderful medium of comics including superheroes outside of superheroes a lot of great indie books and um it's been spectacular. So kind of a long-winded answer. I know I'm sorry about that, but um, there's really no no better way, I think, anyway, that if you have the chance to, to work or help out at your local specialty store, it's such a great way to get immersed in comics in so many different ways. Oh, I'm sure. I, I, I did try a few times, every t- but every time that they were hiring – it was when I did not need a job, so. Oh uh, yeah, so sure. It kind of, yeah. so it didn't really work out for me too well. Um, but but you know it's all good. I'm there pretty much every Wednesday. Um, or if, you know if, if I'm working late, then I, you know, I'm there the next day. Uh, you know, but I'm I but I definitely I have a similar story where I remember being a little kid watching um, uh, Batman '89 and being just terrified of Michael Keaton as Batman. Um, not sure why, but him saying I'm Batman was super scary, which my dad thought was hilarious and he used to use it to scare me all the time. (laughs) And, (laughs) and then, um, you know, you know, you know, running off the bus to see Batman, the animated series and getting into, uh, like Spider-Man, the animated series, which I've rewatched through, uh, Disney plus and, and surprisingly it holds up better than, uh, better than I remember. Um, which I was kind of shocked at. I mean, it's, it's very, uh, you have to kind of appreciate Batman the Animated Series, how much they kind of got away with, because, uh, like, in Spider-Man, he never punches anybody, you know, he's just webbing them up yeah. or kicking them, but in that, but in, you know, Batman the Animated Series, which was on the same network there, you know, he's, he's punching people, he's, they're talking about drugs, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. they, they got away with a lot on that show. Same with the X-Men, too. I mean, it's it's something you have to have quite a skill to be able to skirt around. How do you use a character that has six indestructible claws 
without stabbing people in the face. Right. Uh, I mean, he just tore a bunch of robots apart. But no, I mean, the Spider-Man and the X-Men shows, they were great because unlike the Batman show, which tonally was, you're right, on a whole other level and probably animation-wise and stylistically was on on another level too. Mm -hmm. But for what the Spider-Man and X-Men shows were, they took a bit of a different tact in trying to pretty closely adapt a lot of really good and recognizable definitive Marvel X-Men and Spider-Man stories Yeah, because you didn't really get a ton of direct adaptations of stories in Batman, the animated series. You got a few, yeah, but not with the regularity that X-Men and Spider-Man did. So right. it was a great way, especially in retrospect to, to get accustomed to Spider-Man and the X-Men. And those shows, I still, I'm, I'm totally with you. I have a bunch of fun watching them now. Yeah. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're, uh, that, uh, I am blanking on his name that plays Peter Parker uh, Christopher, Christopher Daniel Barnes. That's it, yes. Um, like that's that's the voice I hear in my head when I'm reading a Spider-Man comic book. You know, uh, <laughs> much in the same way that it's Kevin Conroy when I read a Batman comic. Um, sure. But uh, so getting uh, so speaking of Batman, um, so I had reached out to you and asked if you know what your uh, favorite Joker story was, uh, if you wanted to be a guest and you wanted to talk about something. And, uh, and you, and you gave me some really great kind of non-traditional answers, which, uh, which I was very excited about because, you know, it's, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, it's the killing joke. Oh, it's, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the Dark Knight Returns or, or even the more recent, like Death of the Family, you know, but, uh, but I, but you had said the, the Joker's five-way revenge, which, um. Yeah, it was is slightly more more traditional, but not not as well known as the others. I think, at least in terms of uh, like the pop culture zeitgeist. Um, but then, uh, and then also the clown at midnight, which I completely forgot existed <laughs> until you mentioned it. Um, and then the one that I got excited about that was a, one of my favorite Joker stories was uh, Sleigh Ride from Detective Comics number eight twenty six. So what what about that issue? Because um, that was back when Paul Dini was kind of doing kind of the done in one stories with uh, Detective Comics. So they were a little bit more like the animated series. Because um, obviously he was a prominent writer on that. But uh, what yeah. what was it about that issue that stuck out for you? That stuck out for you and made you say, "Oh, this is a great Joker story." Oh, it's very easy. The paralyzing terror that comes with reading it. Um, I actually relatively recently revisited it too, because, uh, my, my buddy Paul Herman and I, we have a podcast called the comic binge. And, uh, we actually had an episode about the first six issues of, of Paul Dini's done in one detective run. Mm -hmm. And this was among them. Um, and I still reread this story on an alarmingly regular basis. I probably read it at least two or three times a year uh-huh. just because I, I love it so much. And there's a couple of key reasons. One is that Batman not being present for the majority of the story really does heighten the tension and heighten the drama because you really do get the sense that, yes, Robin is capable um, and the, the the issue primarily focuses on the Tim Drake Robin. I should probably say that yeah. Robin is a capable crime fighter. Mm-hmm. He's a competent crime fighter, and he's been trained by the best in the world. He and, and a lot of people believe him to be the best Robin. Yeah. Um, so 
that is good, but what can possibly test him? You don't often see a whole lot of scenarios in which the Joker faces off against any Robin with things going very well for Robin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with a couple of definitive examples as, as absolute proof of that. Right. So having a story start off with, uh oh, Robin's in a bit of a bind that this isn't looking too great for him, and then looking like he has an out and a potential way um, to just get out of a, a hairy situation, but then all of a sudden taking in the full horror of what he has actually just happened into. I will never forget the first feeling because I was working at a store when this issue came out. Mm -hmm. When I first read this issue, it was like my stomach dropped out from the bottom. (laughs) Um, Because the Joker was on the cover, so it's not like it was an unexpected occurrence that he was going to show up. Right. But I I didn't realize that this was going to be kind of like a very intimate one-act, two-person play. And when you have the analytical mind of Tim Drake, who, especially at this time that that DC was publishing stories, uh, you know, you had had people like Jeff Johns on Teen Titans that were really hammering home that Tim Drake is the guy who's going to inherit the title of the world's greatest detective one day. Right. So the, the gears turning in Tim's mind while he is confronted with this hateful evil that the Joker represents mm-hmm. uh, is just one of the things I love the most about this story. And Dini does such like, of course he writes Robin really well. And of course he writes the Joker well, but this was really the first time in a long time that I had seen the Joker in what I would say his most definitive form, because some writers have a tendency to, darken him too much just to go for shock value yeah and and others you know if it's a story for all ages then obviously you can't do the the things that the joker is known for when it comes to inflicting death and horror on people this story is very much in a sweet spot the irreverence is there and the goofiness is there but it is quickly tinged with the darkness that comes with his unique brand of murder and Mm. mayhem and uh you are feeling every single jolt while Robin is strapped into the seat of that car, helpless to stop the horror and death that the Joker is inflicting until a very pivotal moment. So as far as a done-in-one comic book, this is among my absolutely favorite comic book reading experiences and is really, really necessary reading, I think, if you want to get a good understanding, not just of the Joker, but also of Tim Drake. It's just, it's very nearly a perfect comic book in my mind. Very well said. Yeah. It's, uh, it, uh, I recently reread it, you know, for purposes of this, uh, podcast, but also just, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, just a damn good story. You know, that, that can't be uh, overstated enough. Um, and you know, it's, it's kind of that same way, uh, where it it does feel like a like a little bit more of like a PG thirteen close to R rating episode of like the animated series, uh, you know, like I had said before, um, and having kind of Tim be Robin in it, and then I mean Tim's was a little different in the uh, in the animated series. He was a little bit more Jason Todd in the animated series than he was uh, Tim Drake, but he was still uh, a very yeah, you know, but he was a, a capable fighter, and he was somebody that you know. Uh, 
won Batman's trust, you know, obviously. Yeah. Um, right. But in the, uh, in the, in the issue, it's really just, uh, you know, I mean, cause the, the basic story is that, like you said, Robin's trying to get away from some thugs, you know, he, he thinks he has a way out and he gets kidnapped by the Joker and the Joker just starts mowing people down, just driving this car and, yeah. and he's just making Tim watch. And, uh, it goes back to, you know, kind of that, that idea from the killing joke that, you know, all it takes is one bad day to kind of, you know, get to, for someone to break. And the Joker's whole thing throughout this is trying to make sure that Tim has that bad day, that he's going to, he's going to, you know, kill all these people. And that's going to, and that's going to really like mess him up. And not only that, but in addition to that, like it'll, if he gets messed up, then it'll mess up Batman, you know? Um, and, uh, that was one of my, uh, uh, something I've always really loved from, um, the Dark Knight movie was when, Bat- you know, Batman says, why'd you want to kill me? And Joker says, I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? I was like, this might be the first time that was outright stated, you know, where Joker's like, I, I don't want to kill you, you know, um, because it just, to me, that always made sense. And that's kind of what I always thought. It was more, it's more interesting for Joker to, to torture Batman and Robin than it is for him to kill him. You know, I, you know, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would say that that's accurate. I mean, the Joker's entire modus operandi is to, I mean, when he, when he kills people, when he inflicts death on someone, Death is almost an insult when it comes to the Joker because it does it means that he doesn't mean enough to you to even bother keeping around. Yeah. You know, that's that's one of the primary ways that he communicates that. Um, but you know, the the relationship between Joker and Robin is very different than it is for Joker and Batman, uh, understandably so, because mm-hmm. there is kind of a strange codependency going on there between Joker and Batman but when it comes to Robin Robin almost and I specifically Tim Drake almost sees the Joker as less than it seems Batman has a strange kind of hateful but also weirdly respectful reverence for the Joker and what he can do but that doesn't exist with Robin Robin just sees a thug and a killer and doesn't have any preconceived notions about what he represents. He just sees the Joker as a problem to be stopped. And, uh, Batman always treats the Joker with, um, not with kid gloves necessarily, almost, uh, in a more extreme way because that's what the Joker requires from Mm -hmm. Batman. Right. But, um, no such tete-a-tete exists between Robin and the Joker. And the thing that I really love about this issue is that it's on full display. Robin is so determined to inflict pain on the Joker as quickly as possible because of all, all the people that he's wantonly killing. Mm-hmm. But the Joker just has that step ahead. And you see in that story, even without Batman being there, why Batman's way of trying to contain the Joker is more effective than uh, just viewing him as another obstacle to overcome. There's a method 
to the way that Batman handles the Joker that Robin does not have very much of a keen insight into. Mm-hmm. But um, so I, I feel like that is a is a a very interesting um, exercise on the part of Deanie in sort of illustrating why. Batman is best suited to handle the Joker, even though Batman isn't in the majority of the pages, and Batman doesn't even encounter the Joker in this issue directly. So, uh, but yeah, that that strange kind of codependency is there, and doesn't make sense to a lot of people, especially in Gotham City, Mm -hmm. uh, who just want the Joker to be killed and and pushed aside, but... um, Obviously, Batman doesn't believe in murder, and he knows the best way to try and contain that kind of madness. And the police don't know it, and not even Robin knows it. There, it's uh, it's interesting, and I've said this before in other episodes, where, uh, you know, Batman is definitely the, he's the boogeyman to the criminals in Gotham City, but, uh, but the Joker is his boogeyman, you know? Um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting when, like, Batman will take on, he'll fight you know, he'll fight Darkseid, he'll fight, you know, the Anti-Monitor, you know, um, and you know, these cosmic level threats, and, but the Joker gets, more than any, any other character, gets under his skin, you know, and gets, and gets to the, there's something about that, you know, like you said, that codependency where it is, uh, that dark shadow of himself that's really, really, really interesting, and um, and in this issue, it's really great to see how Robin has to deal with it because like you said, you know, it's just to him or to Robin, you know, he's just another thug and, and also Robin's going to kind of mess with him a little bit. He's going to play with him. You know, it's a great part when he starts quoting, um, uh, it's I think it's the Marx brothers, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah he, <laughs> and, and Joker's like starts to laugh and, you know, says, Oh, you know, I I didn't think you kids watched those, and and then they argue about which uh, which special or which episode that that uh, that the line Robin says is from, and that's kind of how yeah, Robin... the line is from the lines from a night at the opera. But the way that Robin screws with his brain is by saying, "Oh, I love the big story." Like, "Oh, it's not the big story; it's a night at the opera." Don't you know anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a really well written moment, and it's you know it's the same way. Uh, you know, that they kind of wrote in uh, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker, you know, where it was like <clears throat> Batman was just like, you know what, I'll just, I can just charge in and, and beat the crap out of the Joker and be done with it. But Terry's like, you know what, I, I'm i going to kind of mess with him a little bit. And and that, and that's, and that's, and that's interesting, you know, where these characters, like the Joker can handle Batman. He knows how to deal with Batman. Batman knows kind of how to deal with the Joker. But when they're, but when somebody else dealing with the Joker, when the Joker's dealing with somebody else, you know they're a little they're a little out of their, uh, you know, out of their element in a weird way, you know. Despite the fact that there's something, you know, obviously it's like, oh, you know, you're Batman's partner, you're probably a lot like him. It's like, well, no, he's actually not not that much like him. He's uh, he's gonna, you know, Batman might just growl at you and punch you, but Robin's gonna kind of talk talk some smack to you, and it makes for a really uh, entertaining story where you see how how smart that Tim is how you know he really doesn't you know he's he's angry of course you know he he wants to get out of there and beat the crap out of the Joker but he's also like you know what like you know I'm I'm gonna find a way to torture you the way you're torturing me and it's so it's really really interesting 
Yeah, most definitely. And I mean, the way that Dini writes the Joker here, unfortunately, we didn't get a ton of instances in which Dini wrote the Joker directly during his detective run. We got a couple of glimpses at the Joker, um, like in Gotham City Sirens and a couple of other things. But Mm -hmm. the guy who was really driving the ship for Batman at this time was Grant Morrison. And Morrison kind of had first dibs on the Joker. They even there's an editor's note at the beginning of, of Detective A twenty six that says that this the events of this issue take place prior to Batman six fifty five, which was Morrison's first issue in which the Joker gets shot in the head by a Batman impersonator at the very beginning and then thrown into a dumpster. Yeah, I remember um, that, yeah. But Deanie Deanie does a really good job of writing sort of definitive Joker and then on the other side of the spectrum i mean this was in my mind anyways like a golden age for batman because we had dini on detective and we had morrison on the on the main superhero title mm-hmm. and grant morrison is my favorite writer in comics uh and it's due in no small part to the way that he wrote the relationship between batman and the joker because it is just pitch perfect and it understands the sort of psychological gravity that is at play with both of these extreme personalities mm-hmm. um but then you have Dini who comes in and it's a it's a more traditional joker absolutely but it's also just as dangerous just as threatening and you see that on full display in this issue yeah it's uh it you know it's it's just so it's just so simple for him you know he's just like he he just runs these people over and he and he like jokes about it he's like oh my gosh did you see that like that person came out of nowhere and and it's it's just i i remember you know thinking you know kind of like what you said earlier like reading this issue and thinking are they gonna kill off tim in this issue like you know, because <laughs> uh, it feels possible. Like yeah. it's it's the kind of good comic book reading experience that overrides your logic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there have only been like a couple of instances when I've been so enthralled in a single issue that I've actually been totally bought into the concept. Like, are they really going in this direction? It was this, and um, actually, the Sinestro Core special was one of the other ones. But, uh, yeah, with this one, you believe it's possible that the Joker could finish off Robin. Mm-hmm. And that is pretty amazing, all things considered. Yeah, especially, you know, in the uh, the kind of, like we said before, the done-in-one-ness of it. It's, uh, you're, you're kind of, uh, like, okay, so this is just going to be this one, this one story, you know, a quick, a quickie comic kind of thing. Um, you don't need to really read anything else before it. But it's also like, man, this... This could have, like, like reading it going, this could have lasting complications for the characters going forward. Um, and then, yeah. but it's really, uh, like I said, just Dini just kind of at his best when he can just write these really, like, simple um, but very effective stories. Like, it's it's essentially kind of a, I like the way you put it, where you said it was a, it was a, it was a two-actor, one-act play. Um it's it's a little bit kind of like a bottle episode in a way, you know, where there's yeah. a, there's just kind of the one setting, and and then it's just these two characters, and it's and I you know when I was rereading it, I was just like, man, like this is this is so good, and it leaves me wanting more, but I'm also glad that they, you know, Dini never tried to do anything similar to it. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's kind of exhausting, you know, yeah. because you're. <laughs> 
you go on the emotional journey with Tim being, uh, you know, tied up and trapped for the majority of the time that we see him here. And you can tell that he is just exhausted trying to work through things. Mm-hmm. I mean, he mentions that the Joker's turning the heat up to keep him uncomfortable, you know, like a slow boil on torture. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you feel it. I'm glad that it finished when it did just precisely because of that. But that's also, I think it emphasizes the strength of Deanie as a choice for writing ongoing Batman stories because obviously he cut his teeth pretty well on Batman the Animated Series, oh, yeah. which were 20, 21-minute episodes each time. Mm-hmm. Not many of them had the same kind of you know through-line uh, connection or um, serialized storytelling. A lot of them were done in one episode. So yeah. because Danny had spent much of his career before writing done in one episodes featuring Batman, it's uniquely suited to write done in one stories on an ongoing basis. And you really got like, I love Danny's run in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, you know, later on it did go with single serialized stories that stretched over multiple issues. Right. But for my money, his done-in-one detective issues are some of the best Batman stories that someone could read, even just as a crash course for everything that Gotham City has to offer. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's just terrific, and I think this is the best one. And it doesn't even have Batman in it all that much. <laughs> yeah, Batman's only on, like, the last page uh, when he kind of yeah. congratulates Tim and he says, hey, you know, you, you survived what the Joker, like, the worst the Joker could throw at you. And... Uh, and I, I, and I really liked that because again, it it did it did feel like the animated series to me. It's like I can hear Matthew Valencia as as Tim, Hamill as the Joker, and Conroy as as Batman. You know, like just really like wow, like this is, you know, it, it's flowing so well. And and the uh, the artist uh, Don Kramer, um, who who doesn't I don't think he, he doesn't really do that much, does he? Uh, he did a lot of Dini stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think he's he's done a ton these days, or at least not like in an ongoing fashion. I still see his name crop up in the solicitations from time to time, mm-hmm. but um, he is just a really good, solid, reliable artist yeah. with a really strong line, and the most pivotal aspect of this issue, at least to me, is the way that the Joker's eyes are rendered, and the Joker just looks scary and hateful yeah. whenever you see it. And, uh, I mean, that's doing no small part to, to all, all the heavy lifting that Don Kramer does as a penciler. He is an exceptional choice for these issues. You know, the, the most important thing with, with this is, um, is, is the, uh, the emotion that has to come through with it. Like, the Joker has to look evil, and Tim has to kind of look helpless, you know? And, um, yeah. and I think that when you have a great pairing with writer and artist and and they definitely were a great pair uh Deanie and Kramer they you know you for me when it's when it's a great pairing like that uh I they blend together in a weird way you know what I mean like I I can't it, it flows so well that I I almost feel like I'm watching a movie or something you know what I mean right and and that's uh yeah and, and that's so much uh you know, and it, it makes the the issue just that much more exciting and compelling to read because it's just like, whoa, that was that was put together so well. Because I've you know I've read comics with terrible art in them, and sure. <laughs> it makes it makes it harder to get into the story. 
Um, just like the other way, when the writing isn't that good, but the art is, um, and I won't name names of any of <laughs> you for fear that <laughs> they might might listen to this someday. Um, but there are, uh, you know, artists that or writers that that aren't aren't that strong, but the art is. And then it's just like, well, you know, you know, it's just like you know, my, my friend said, it's like, well, it's just something pretty to look at. And I was like, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Most definitely. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Um, and, and Dini, I, I always consider him the, you know, anytime that they talk about, um, like, oh, Dini's writing something Batman or it's something Joker or whatever. It's like, it's going to be good. There's no, there's no question. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. he, he wrote, um, he actually wrote a couple episodes of Batman, the brave and the bold. And, uh, sure. and those are some of the, some of the better episodes, even though it, stayed true to the kind of campiness of that show i could still feel dini's kind of signature flair in there where um he could fit their style but you know it was still just a just slightly more mature than the average uh than the average episode of the brave and the bold i don't know if you ever watched any of those Oh yeah, I absolutely have. And there's just a truthfulness that is undeniable whenever Dini's name is attached to something having to do with Batman, whether it's his Brave and the Bold episodes, any of the BTAS episodes that he wrote, Justice League episodes that he wrote, comics that he's written, mm-hmm. uh, or video games, which for my money is still, you know, right up there and probably surpasses most movie adaptations as my favorite non-comics version of the character. Uh, I, I love Dini's work on the Arkham games. Those games are, obviously, they bring a lot of really excellent mechanical things to the table, mm-hmm. but the writing followed suit and felt like a truthful, hard-edged, and potent Batman story, both of the times that he wrote a video game. And uh, the guy is just multi-talented, and he's able to adapt whatever the tone is for the medium and the and the specific show that requires it but because he understands batman and his world so well you know that you're going to get something truthful out of it every time yeah there's a there's a definite passion that you can feel there and uh it's you know and and it's it's funny because i sometimes forget about the arkham games but i you know in, in doing this kind of series here the different joker episodes for for the four comic junkies podcast uh, plugging my own show, um, <laughs> we uh, 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 one of my a couple of my friends I was talking to, I was like, oh, so what's your favorite Joker story? And they were like, oh, I really love like uh, the Batman Arkham games, and it just I it, like kind of blew my mind a little bit. I was like, I I don't think I would have thought of that in a million years, not because they're bad, but because I I never thought of them in in terms of like story, but. But it, uh, but you know, but I would have to, but I kind of like thought about it, and I was like, yeah, they are though. They're they're really great stories, and they're really well put together, and um, and having you know, again, having those same uh, those same voice actors that that helps a lot. Um, but having great great writing, where it's like, you know, I Arkham Asylum is actually my favorite of the of the three um, of the three main ones. I mean, uh, just because I. I, I like the kind of, sim, you know, like like I said before, the very simplistic story. It's like Joker's taking over Arkham, Batman's going to stop him. You know what I mean? It's just, that's right. that's essentially all it is, but there's, you know, there's a lot going on in, in that story, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, 
it's hard for me to pick a favorite. I think just in terms of um, how all-encompassing it is, I tend to prefer City on a story level, mm-hmm. just because it did such a good job of tying everything together. Um, environmentally, I'd probably be right there with you with Arkham Asylum, just because the the atmosphere of that game is second to none. Yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, I mean, I, I, honestly, I mean, I played these games so many times, and I've beaten them a hundred percent so many times now. I could probably do it in my sleep, mm-hmm. but the writing really does stand out. I mean, even Arkham Knight, which tends to get uh, not trashed, but it's let's say it's more gone after in terms of uh, of its story aims mm-hmm. or storytelling aims. Um, I think they did a pretty respectable job. Obviously, it's not Dini that's writing the story, so it's I don't think it's as good creatively as the two games that preceded it. Mm-hmm. But it still did a pretty respectable job of trying to, to tie sort of a bow on the Batman-Joker rivalry. Yeah. And Joker wasn't even a character that was alive in that game, technically. Yeah, he's, uh, he's was, just was a, still a very big part of it. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's just but a then, ghost, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But even Arkham Origins, um, the, the story writers, Corey May and Dumo Vensha, I think, think and they have both written some assassin's creed games before it's a pretty solid origin story for the batman joker rivalry in terms of what it decided to adapt and how it sort of tried to uh, contextualize where the rivalry comes from and what drives it um so origins gets overlooked i think it has more technical problems than the other games Mm -hmm. but creatively and story-wise it stands very much uh in line i think with the other games but just in terms of really solid definitive batman storytelling i love those first two games and city probably just slightly edges it out but i mean it's all deanie batman so you're not really losing either way true true um in terms of the you know the the joker you know not really being a character but being a presence i would also cite um injustice uh, especially obviously the first one uh, because sure. it's, it's, I mean, he kind of is the catalyst for the whole story being, you know, going forward, really. Um, and that's, yeah. and that's such a, which is, I think it's easy to forget because you just think of it as like, you know, Superman kind of ruling the world. Um, but those, uh, those comics that, you know, were kind of the prequel to the game that Tom Taylor wrote, uh, that's how I became, mm-hmm. a, that's how I became a Tom Taylor fan. Cause sure. I, yeah. I remember when that first issue, it was a, you know, it was a digital issue. So I bought it and I was, I was like, ah, oh, you know, like video game tie-in comics, they're usually not very good, but whatever, I'll check it out. And so it was like, I was like, yeah, it's, you know, it's 99 cents. Sure. <laughs> and then yeah, sure. just in that first issue alone, I was blown away. I mean, it, the first issue ends with the Joker murdering Jimmy Olsen, <laughs> you know? Um, right. Yeah. So it's like. So right off the bat, I was like, holy, you know, like, holy shit, like, this is, <laughs> this is happening. <laughs> and, and I mean, in that story, the Joker murders Superman's innocence, basically. Yeah. And, um, and it comes back to punch him through the chest not too much longer after that. Yeah. Um, did you, uh, you, you, I assume you've read all Injustice? Yeah, I um, I waited until it was in print because I was working at a comic shop at the time, so it was easier for me to just kind of wait until it came in. And I think the print versions compiled the first three or four digital issues into one yes. uh, print issue. So that's how I kept up with it. 
And I'm right there with you. I mean, it, not only did it put Tom Taylor on the map in my mind, but it was just a really solid way to tell sort of an Elseworld story. And the game did a really brilliant job picking up on it by showing that it was, you know, through the looking glass. It was taking a look at an alternate DC universe because I actually really love that uh, we got to see a true Superman versus a corrupted one at yeah. the end of the game. Mm-hmm. And, um, but those comics, yeah, they, you're right. They were excellent, and they did a really good job of sort of subverting the expectations of what it means to be a DC comic story, while still feeling strangely truthful to the rules of the universe as they'd been established for decades up to that point. So, yeah, I was a big fan of those books. Yeah, the the, the year three issues that um, I frequently revisit. Are, are the ones where I, I, it's Constantine and uh, Dr. Fate or somebody, they, I forget exactly who, uh, but they trap Superman in, in a dream. And in the dream, uh, the events go a little differently where uh, Batman, Batman is the one that kills the Joker. Because um, they're driving, you know, he's driving him to the you know police station and Joker says, well, he's like, what are you going to do? Just throw me back in jail? You know, like, I'll get out and I'll just do this all over again. And Batman just snaps his neck and says, all right, I, and he goes up to the police and says, I want to report a murder. And I remember rereading those and thinking, man, like this is, this is so sad how, you know, that, that what if game gets played in this comic, you know? (laughs) Um, And it's just so, it's so beautiful and so tragic. And, and Superman, you know, he says, you know, you, you killed him. And, and Bruce was like, yeah, it was the only way to stop him. And, you know, they're, they're in j- like Bruce is in jail and they're uh, they're talking through the, you know, the phones or whatever. And Superman just walks right through them <laughs> and hugs Bruce. And it's just it's such a sweet moment. Um, but uh, but again, I was so immersed in that storyline that I was just going like, this is so sad because they're not friends anymore. <laughs> but then yeah. it's like, well, yeah, it's just obviously they're I mean, Elseworlds. But that's how effective those stories were to me, at least. Yeah, sure. No, I totally understand that. And I think the second game story did a really good job of sort of emphasizing the tragedy of that lost friendship. Yeah. Because you even get to see them work together again briefly, but it just kind of all crashes down again when Superman gives in to his authoritarian tendencies once again. Yeah. Batman has a shadow of a hope that maybe the, the, the man that I know and the man that I really respect and look up to is it going to come around, but he's just not there anymore. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very tragic in that sense. And, um, but, uh, those, you know, but, but again, it goes back to how great of a writer that Tom Taylor is, you know, where he just, he wasn't afraid to just, you know, and he did it recently again with uh, deceased. Um, cause I, cause I guess that's how you, I, I, I'm just realizing now that I've never said it out loud. So, <laughs> oh yeah, that's how, that's totally how you say it. Yeah, De- deceased. Okay, <laughs> so not de- not deceased, deceased. Interesting. Okay, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I've spelled it a bunch of times. Um, but anyway, uh, but yeah, in the in that same way where these characters are written very very well and they're written very true to who they are, but they are also you're also in this world that's just collapsing around them, whether it's the injustice world or the. Uh, um, or the DC's world, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, most definitely. I I I do kind of wish we could get a a regular Tom Taylor, <laughs> Batman or Superman <laughs> book, but 
Maybe someday. <laughs> he's written a couple issues yeah, maybe. there. But. He's, he, he's going to be around for a while. I bet it's. Uh, I bet it'll happen at some point. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, in the meantime, he's just going to continue murdering as many heroes as he can throughout all his, all his books. <laughs> Probably. <yeah. laughs> um, so I did. Uh, so I did have some questions for you. Um, sure. That we that I had sent you ahead of time, so you know we're not. <laughs> So you'd have time to think out your answers and everything. Um, so, and kind of getting back to the Joker here, um, what what are you hoping for with the character? You know, with the success of Joker, which uh, I, I really liked that film. I was very pleased with it. Um, despite it being, you know, I mean, you want to talk Elseworlds, that, that to me is a very Elseworlds-ish type of movie. Um, and, sure. I, and I think it was designed to be. Um but yeah, but with the success of that, and then, you know, James Tynion, or Tynion? Ty- is that right? I think, I think it's Tynion. Tynion, that's it. Damn it. Man, he's going to listen to this and go, you know what? I hate this guy. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but, so he's got the Joker War coming up, uh, which looks exciting, and then, obviously, we finally got confirmation about Jeff Johns and Jason Fabuck's, um Three Jokers. So, you know, so all this really exciting Joker stuff coming up uh what are what are your hopes for the character going forward well um honestly i think the joker is used best at least specifically in comics when he's used sparingly Mm -hmm. because there's a reason that fans across the world react to him the way that they do if you saw him all the time then he would lose some of his power and uh and one of the things that i really appreciate that's been done pretty consistently in the comics over the last 15 16 years or so is that they're not using him on a constant basis at least in the mainline dc books Mm -hmm. i think that that's a good approach that it makes a joker story worth paying serious attention to if he's showing up and he's causing havoc and if you don't see him all that much then you just go whoa the joker showed up that means that this is a serious deal and i should probably be paying attention to it um so in the comics i hope they continue to do that i think that it makes more sense in terms of just the way that he operates that he wouldn't want to be out in the spotlight on a constant basis that he would want to deliberately make an impact whenever he acts for some reason. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's something that I hope continues. Um, I am really looking forward to three jokers. Um, Primarily because, I mean, I was really invested in Jeff Johns' Justice League run. Mm -hmm. Uh, The New 52 tends to get kind of a bad rep from a lot of people and just gets painted with a very broad brush. But there were a lot of good things that we got out of the New 52, not the least of which being Scott Snyder's run on Batman and Jeff Johns' run on Justice League. So um, to me, when I think of the New 52, those are the two runs that I think of because they were just solid. I thought we got good new 52 stories out of the flash and out of green lantern too and Mm -hmm. detective was kind of hit or miss but it still wasn't all that bad you had greg pack on action which i thought was pretty spectacular actually so um the fact that justice league hinted at what it did with the joker when batman was sitting in metron's chair it's an 
a really intriguing sort of concept to go with. I'm going to be really excited to see how Johns decides to sort of pay that off. So I'm really looking forward to that story. And Jason Fabok is an excellent artist. Uh, every single time that, that he puts his pencil to the page, it's always worth paying attention to. In terms of other media stuff, I liked Joker too. I thought it was a good movie, but I wasn't as enamored with it as a lot of people seem to be. Mm-hmm. Only because, um, you know, the, the Joker as a character, in my mind anyway, is defined by his purpose of serving as a foil to Batman. So when you have a Joker story that doesn't have Batman, to me it's seriously missing an ingredient that makes that character special. Uh, but that being said, for what it was, and especially considering the lead performance out of it, it was a really interesting movie. Um, and in terms of movie stuff, I guess I would kind of prefer Joker to stay in its own corner. And if they decided to introduce the character alongside Robert Pattinson's Batman, then I would probably prefer it be another actor that can sort of pick up the DCEU Joker baton and run with it. Yeah. But um yeah, I think that that's kind of where my headspace is at. Keep keep Joaquin's movie separate, and it sounds like they're going to be doing a follow-up anyway, so let him hang around in his own world. Um, but you should definitely use the Joker when the time is right in the movies on an ongoing basis. And um, as long as they keep using the Joker sparingly in the comics so that he can always have the biggest impact, I think that'll be the best way to go. Yeah, yeah, I, I that's... Again, very well said, sir. Uh, <laughs> um, I I definitely agree that uh, the uh, uh, you know him being used sparingly. You know, it's funny you mention when he uh, you know when he pops up in something, you're like, whoa, whoa, that's that's the Joker. Uh, my first thought went back to Paul Dini's detective run with the um, uh, Zatanna uh, two part story. Where uh, the jo- sure. the Joker was revealed to be the villain at the end of the first first part, and I remember thinking that, like, because the Joker even says he's like, "Admit it, I got you, I got you good," and I was like, "Oh, it's the Joker," <laughs> and it was just like, th- like that was good. I did not see that coming, and and you know, unlike the the Robin issue, you know, we've we've been talking about a lot. Uh, the Joker wasn't even on the cover for that, so it was a huge shock. Um, uh, he was on the cover of Detective Eight Twenty Six, though. He was, was just no, I, I know, but I meant yeah, to, I meant the Zatanna one. He wasn't on the cover. Oh, you meant the Zatanna? Oh, right, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's always gonna gonna make more of an impact. I mean, when he shows up, the one that I always think of is um, Batman and Robin number twelve at the end when uh, when Oberon Sexton and and Dick Grayson Batman are in a room together and Dick starts to actually put together who Oberon Sexton was and when he takes the mask off and reveals he's the Joker that was one of the coolest moments I've ever read in a comic book yeah yeah and yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's it's just you know you every move is deliberate but because he's not He's ubiquitous in our minds, but because you don't see him all the time, you're left to wonder what he's up to. Mm-hmm. And then when he shows up, you turn your head and pay attention because you should, because it's the damn Joker. Yeah, I uh, and I love that. Uh, I, I, I so I guess it's Batman and Robin number thirteen. Then when uh, Robin, you know, uh, you know when it, it, Damian Wayne at this point 
when he takes out the crowbar and he's going to beat up the Joker and he starts laughing. He's like, this Robin even brought his own crowbar. And, um, and then, uh, and then he has a really great line where he says, he says it kind of quietly where he's looking at Robin and he says, you sound like him. And, you know, obviously he's, he's referring to Batman. Um, and I, I remember reading that and getting chills thinking like, you know, I, I've always been of the mindset that the Joker knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman, but he just doesn't care, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think every writer, it's, it's, you know, it's hit or miss whether, whether they're going to reveal it or not. Uh, it looks like James, uh, Tynan, if I'm saying that right again, uh, I think I said it right that time, but, uh, that he does know, uh, Bruce's identity and, uh, obviously it was that way in Batman Endgame as well, where he mm-hmm. straight up calls him Bruce. Uh, which that moment was utterly terrifying to me. That that moment fell a little flat for me only because it was made out to be a big moment in the story. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I always go back to, I'm, I'm with you in that Joker knows, but yeah, he doesn't care. And you most visibly saw that at least over the last couple of decades probably in batman r.i.p near the very end of it and again it's grant morrison but yeah. i mean he had his mask off and joker didn't react at all it was just like yeah that, that's him yeah who cares I, I i know that already that's really that's batman and it, i mean he, he didn't react whatsoever to the fact that batman's mask came off because he knows and he just doesn't care yeah and the thing that i found kind of chilling about the moment that you mentioned with Robin where he said you sound like him it's just that sort of intimate knowledge that people forget the Joker has about Batman Mm -hmm. there are few people on earth who know Batman as well as the Joker does and vice versa but because Joker's mind is sort of wrapped in this super sanity as Grant Morrison likes to call it it's more unsettling that the nemesis knows the hero as well as he does and uh, it's one of the things that makes the Joker so bone-chilling. Uh, yeah, 100%. He, and I think that that's, you know, it goes back to what I was saying before about the Dark Knight, you know, just, he says, you know, I, I don't want to kill you, uh, what would I do without you? And it's, <clears throat> uh, you know, I've said this in other episodes, but my, one of my favorite often overlooked parts of the Dark Knight is when Joker is, con- when he confronts the kind of the three main heroes of Batman, Dent, and Gordon, and he's saying something to them. He's he's taunting them or, or lecturing them or whatever he's doing. At all three times, none of them argue with him. None of them say, no, you're wrong. You know, they're they're all kind of listening and in a weird way almost accepting what he's saying. Like, wow, like, he's, this is, he's not, sure, he might be insane, but he's not stupid. And, no. and he, and he knows how to get under people's skin and, I mean, Heath Ledger just, I mean, he just nailed it, you know, and, and Nolan writing the script, of course, I mean, he just, he knew how to, how to write a compelling villain. And that was, uh, I mean, it's just, the interrogation scene is one of my, it, it, you know, I'm sure it's one of everybody's, like, favorite scenes in any movie, not just comic book movies, but any movie. Yeah. Because you just... Yeah, and I mean, he, not only did... Did Nolan's writing and Heath Ledger's performance get the Joker right? But the writing really did nail the spirit of the heroes in those instances too. Because yeah, they didn't argue because they knew they were being baited. 
they yeah. knew that he was trying to trigger them because the only other time where you see one of the cops fall for the bait, things didn't go too well. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that that was a very deliberate, uh, storytelling stroke on the part of the creators of that film was showing that if you fall for the bait, the, dis- the, the consequences are going to be disastrous. Mm-hmm. But if you can stand up to it, then you might be able to make a little headway, which is what, at least in Batman and Gordon's case, they were able to accomplish. Right. Yeah. What a, you know, what a fantastic story. And just really, uh, I remember when it was out in theaters for a while, a friend of mine texted me and said, I just saw The Dark Knight, and wow, I get why you like comic books so much. And that was just like, <laughs> like such a such a great thing to hear. And I was just like, yeah, I've been saying this for years, that they have this really magnificent relationship. And uh, and even rewatching uh, Batman 89, you know, where it's very kind of classic Joker, where he's announcing his crimes on TV, and he's, you know, dancing through the, you know, on the parade float. And he's just making kind of a, you know, a spectacle of himself, whereas Batman's trying very hard to just stay in the shadows. But, you know, he, you know, but like Joker, like kind of forces him out and says, no, you want to fight me? You're going to have to fight me in front of everybody. Essentially, you know, I'm obviously <laughs> paraphrasing. Um, right. Yeah. And and I and I did kind of miss um, Batman being in uh, the Joaquin Phoenix Joker. Um but, uh, you know, I, I don't think that film necessarily needed it. I also don't think that film necessarily needs a follow-up. Um, I would like to see something else done in that way, like with another character, like, you know, like uh, like Catwoman or Mr. Freeze or even if you want to go to, like, Lex Luthor or something like that, you know. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do with it. Um, but uh, I do have a... A sneaking suspicion that, you know, we will see the Joker in a Matt Reeves Batman film. I think it's just, I think that's too, too tantalizing to pass up for a, for a creator. And and Reeves, obviously, you know the, the two Planet of the Apes movies he did are two of my favorite movies. They're, they're so, well done that it it, it blew my mind. You know, <laughs> um, I I remember, well, he didn't do the the first one, the Rise of the Planet of the Apes. But I remember, you know, seeing previews for that, and I might get some hate from, like, sci-fi fans here. I was never a big Planet of the Apes person. I didn't like the first one, um, or the original one, I should say. I was like, I was like, eh, movie's kind of boring. I remember my dad making fun of it. Um, like, he didn't like it at all. And then when they talked about doing Rise of the Planet of the Apes, I was like, I was like, this is, this is really, this is going to be dumb. And then I read all these great reviews. And I eventually went to go see it, and I was just like, "Wow, this movie's amazing!" And then when they did, yeah. when they announced part two, and they were like, "Oh, it takes place like ten years later," I was like, "Oh, that's stupid! Like, I it's not going to be good." And then you know, and then again, heard great things, went to go see it, and I was just like, "Okay, this 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 is amazing! This this was a well done story." So when they said Matt Reeves is taking over Batman, I was like, "I was like, go with God, man! You got this." <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm encouraged as well. Uh, everything that I've seen looks uh, it, it looks like they're really trying to go for the, the, the hard-edged, early kind of Batman story that I know a lot of people tend to prefer. 
as their definitive Batman stories. Yeah. And I'm not one of those people, but I, I still love those stories, just like any Batman fan does. So, yeah, I'm really encouraged by what I've seen so far, and I'm really looking forward to the movie. Uh, I, I definitely am, too. And that uh, the the score that they did in the camera test, you know... Um, I mean, oh I, yes, terrific. Giacchino is unparalleled at what he does. I I became a fan of his uh, within the opening minutes of Star Trek 2009. Mm-hmm. He told me all he needed to tell me about how good he was at what he did. Um, I On a quick side note, because I know you're a huge Star Trek fan, I will tell you that that movie made me a Star Trek fan. Yeah. Hey man, that's... Uh, Welcome to the Umbrella. That was a really weird time to be a Star Trek fan because for about uh, a couple months there, Star Trek was actually cool. And that was a really weird place to be in as a long-time Star Trek fan. <laughs> um, I, I hear you, and I'm sure you'll agree with me that there was, there was that eight-year dark period between Batman and Robin and Batman Begins where I was still a giant Batman fan and people would kind of look at me like, why? And I'm just like, you don't get it. <laughs> um, and then yep. when Batman Begins yep. came out, everybody was like, oh my gosh, Batman's cool. I'm like, I'm like, you're all effing assholes. I've been saying that <laughs> for years. <laughs> and, you know, and now Avengers yep. is making $3 billion per per movie, pretty much. So, uh, right. Yeah, I think I think uh, as our mutual friend said, we're ahead of the curve on that one. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, good one. I like that. Um, so uh, the other question I had for you. So uh, let's say Matt Reeves does um, introduce the Joker in Batman Two or Batman Three. Um, so you are in charge of casting the Joker. So who is your pick? Um. I've always been intrigued by the possibility that is presented by someone like Jake Gyllenhaal. Mm. And the reason that I say that is, um, I don't know if you've seen Nightcrawler. Uh, Not yet, I have not, no. This is a very good movie where he plays a, uh, a a freelance photographer who goes around in the middle of the night and tries to find footage that he can sell to local news stations. And uh, his performance in that movie is exceedingly creepy. Mm-hmm. And he's just an, an actor of a very high caliber. I was I think that that possibility has been diminished entirely since he's played Mysterio now. Mm. But um, if, if it were up to me, I would probably want to get someone of Jake Gyllenhaal's quality and caliber. By that same token, though, I've also been intrigued for a long time primarily just because of performances that I've seen in two movies one recent and one from a long time ago in someone like Wesley Snipes because uh, Snipes played a villain named Simon Phoenix in a movie from 1993 called Demolition Man it's one of my favorites and there's just such an irreverent kind of camp but there's also a streak of viciousness that seems like it would really easily be transferred to someone like the Joker. And then he played a, an actor slash director in um, My Name is Dolomite, which was a Netflix exclusive that came out relatively recently that was starring Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. And um, he brings the same kind of like flair 
to that. Like he's got really great comedic timing, but he can also be very threatening if he wants to be. And I think that that would be an interesting combination for someone like the Joker. Um, and of course, you know, like I've always been curious about the possibilities that someone like Willem Dafoe could prevent, present for the Joker. Mm-hmm. Um, He's a little busy in the DCU as Volko nowadays, so I'm not sure if that's something that would be realistic at all. But um, I think, yeah, someone like Gyllenhaal or maybe even someone like Snipes might be pretty fascinating to see as the Joker. You know, I Demolition Man has kind of shown up a lot in my social media feed lately, mainly because of the lack of toilet paper everywhere. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> yeah, right. So, We're going to the three seashells. Exactly. Uh, so it's interesting you mentioned that. That I, I never would have thought of him, uh, of Snipes, I mean. Um, yeah, that... But I remember... Because I saw Demolition Man after I saw Blade. So I was really, like, <clears throat> like put off, kind of. But I, I was still, like, a kid. So I was just like... I was like, that's Blade. What's he doing? That's weird. <laughs> like, because, yeah, you know, right. when you're young and stupid, you typecast actors. Like, Michael Keaton will always be Batman to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and interestingly enough, uh, Demolition Man had the same screenwriter as Batman Returns. Uh, oh, so there's a little bit of commonality there. Daniel Waters. Uh, I think he worked better for Demolition Man than he did for Batman, personally. But yeah. It's kind uh, of an interesting bit of trivia. Oh, I did not know that. Um, the only other thing I knew he did was uh, Heather's, uh, which uh, right. is an instance where I I saw the musical first. A friend of mine actually directed it at a local college here, and I like, oh. and I loved the musical. Um, I actually like it a lot more mm-hmm. than the movie, if if you can if you can believe that. So, <laughs> um, but anyway. Oh, I can. Okay. <laughs> but uh yeah, my uh my pick for uh uh a Joker um I'd love to see uh, Evan Peters cuz uh I think that especially his work on the <laughs> the various seasons of American Horror Story like he definitely he's got he's got some range on him, you know, so he can play very kind of quiet and innocent and he can also play very mysterious and and evil. And I think he does. Sure. He goes. He does both of them very, very well. Um, mm-hmm. now, now, who's to say? You know what? What'll actually happen with these movies? This movie series, assuming it's. I mean, we're we're all certain it'll be financially successful. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, Batman's a pretty safe bet in terms of you know uh, getting people into the movie theater. Uh, well, ex- except for Justice League, I guess. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's weird. it's funny that you mentioned that though, because if you had told me ten or fifteen years ago that DC Comics on film would be led by Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Shazam, and the Birds of Prey, I would have told you that you were nuts. <laughs> and uh, but that's the world that we live in now. You know, Batman and Superman have taken kind of a back seat, and I understand why. Yeah. Uh, and I've I've liked all the movies that have come out. I really have. But it's just it's weird to think that Aquaman was a billion dollar movie. I never would have thought that was possible. I I thought for sure that it was going to bomb. So I was so when I went to go see it, I was like, okay, like this movie is a ton of fun. Uh, I love it. And then uh, <clears throat> and then just hearing all the money it was making, and then when it crossed a billion dollars, I was like, wow, that again just. Like you said, I 
if somebody had said that years ago, I would have been like, oh, you're, you know, you're insane. But, uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> but yeah. And, but, uh, you know, like Shazam and Aquaman, you know, I think they, they you know, they definitely took from the, the Jeff Johns new 52 stuff. And, uh, oh, yeah. it, it, uh, and it paid off, you know, let he, uh, like he knows what he's doing when he's, when he's writing these books. And I think that must've been in his mind somewhere. Like these would be perfect, perfectly adaptable to a film. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm almost certain that that's the case because he's a guy that always has a mind for those kinds of efficient routes to adaptation. Mm -hmm. And that's why I've never understood, especially recently, the, the, this strain of disdain that some DC fans have for Jeff Johns. I mean, if if not for the efforts of Jeff Johns, it's very possible that DC Comics would not be nearly as prominent as it now is. And uh, I think we owe the guy a lot. He's absolutely one of my favorites as well. I think that uh, in terms of the comic book writing with um, Doomsday Clock, um, I think that there's really only been one other person that I thought could write Dr. Manhattan and that being Alan Moore. But, uh, cause I thought, sure. that, I thought that the movie adaptation didn't write him very well, you know, cause he would be like, if only you could perceive time the way I do. I'm like, yeah, I was just like, ah, that's not how he talks. That's not, that's not right. You're not doing it right. And, and it's like, but I also don't really know how to explain how to do it right. And then reading Jeff Jones, uh, uh, doomsday clock. I was like, I was like, okay, he gets it. Like he's, you know, he's writing, he's writing him and it feels the same way that, uh, Alan Moore wrote him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Doomsday Clock in my mind was an exceptional story. I, uh, I wasn't totally bought into it, especially in the middle of it. And it had notorious scheduling delays, of course, but Mm -hmm. by that last issue, I was totally bought into what it was selling. I absolutely love that story, especially as this 12 issue love letter to everything that Superman represents. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was exactly what I needed when I read it. I hundred percent agree. Um, it, uh, it, I thought it, it was a great way to bring together the, the Watchmen and DC universe. And, and it was great seeing these, these characters just in a, completely different way you know suddenly it's like batman meeting rorschach i mean it's not the rorschach we knew um but you know for all intents and purposes that's visually what we're getting and it's it's incredible uh yeah and then dr the the whole of the justice league and the doom patrol and the titans and everybody going against dr manhattan i was just like i was like whoa i was just like well they're all gonna die, <laughs> but uh, yeah. But uh, this the story really, you know, it really kind of blew me away. And uh, for and yeah, for all the delays, uh, was it was very frustrating, but ultimately worth it in my mind because it was just like this. This was worth the wait. I I've enjoyed, you know, all of this. Um, oh yeah, I mean Shigeru Miyamoto, what the creator of Donkey Kong and Mario said, you know. A uh, a good game is good forever, and so is a bad game. So you take the time, you delay something so you can get it right. Mm-hmm. It's usually going to be worth it because that's that same adage is true for comics. Absolutely it's true for anything, really. Well, that's uh, that's why I'm excited uh, for Three Jokers because you know Jeff Johns. I think 
uh, was now like, okay, so we're not going to do that this time. It's, it's finished. We're going to release it. <laughs> uh, yeah. so that was definitely a smarter way to go. And, uh, and I, I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, you know, I've, I've read, you know, he said that what, what intrigues me the most is in the most recent interview with him, he said, well, you know, the world doesn't need another Batman versus the Joker story. He's like, if I was going to do this, I wanted to, to do something unique and different. And, and I was like, I was like, I believe you, <laughs> you, yeah. uh, he, he made, I mean, he made Aquaman cool for me. You know what I mean? Like I'm a, yeah. I'm a Green Lantern fan because of him. Like this is, uh, you know, so when he's doing, he's like, oh, this is, this is going to be this. I'm like, I'm like, I'm in, I'm sold. You know, you're, you know, he's my favorite writer, you know? Yeah, most definitely. No, I totally agree. Well, Chris, this has been, this has been a lot of fun, man. Um, you know, we've kind of talked here and there on social media, but we never really had a prolonged conversation. Um, but this was great. You know, I think, uh, you're pretty, you're a pretty cool guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, man. I appreciate the invitation. It's always, uh, always fun to talk about the things that are awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, folks, so we are going to be signing off here. And remember, if you got to go, go with a smile.